So receive now, or hear now, the very word of God as it is given to us in the book of Jeremiah, reading from the 29th chapter. Our focus will be on 12 and 13, but I'm going to back up and read what we studied this morning, starting in the 10th verse. For thus says the Lord... When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And may the Lord bless this word to our understanding this evening. Let's ask him to bring it alive. Dear Lord, as we continue this thought that we started this morning, as we continue into your word and we talk about the profound subject of seeking your face, and we ask ourselves some probing questions, I pray that you would illuminate the word to us, um, allow us to look at ourselves deeply, not just individually, but especially tonight, as a church, as one of your churches that you have pulled together and given an identity. And I pray that as we consider these words, we will consider it just that way, as, as a body of Christ, as a church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. A couple of things that I want to share with you before we get started this evening. One is those of you who have been here for a while know that I sort of have this strange series that I normally do on New Year's Eve. Uh, We go around scripture and we look for people who are in the same kind of situation that we are in. We have our backs to the wall. We're at the end of the year. We cannot go back. Now, some of us would prefer not to go back, but even if we wanted to go back, we couldn't relive 2023. So we're kind of forced to go forward. And there are quite a few different situations in Scripture like that. For instance, the children of Israel standing on the edge of the Red Sea, the armies of Pharaoh behind them. They can do anything but go forward. Joshua standing on the Jordan River, 40 years in the desert behind them. They've got to go forward into the Promised Land. But this evening, I'm going to do things just a wee bit different. Um, I'm not going to pull that kind of situation out, uh, and you can see it's really not part of this story, but I do want to look forward. In fact, I want this evening to end as sort of a prayer, sort of a prayer of what this church will be when we look at the year before us, that we will indeed do exactly what the title of this message says, to seek the face of God. Now, also I'm going to do something a little different uh, this evening. I haven't really actually done this before. Um, The series starts in the morning and ends in the evening. Um, Actually, there's a very well-known preacher. I'm not going to give you his name because I don't know that he does this all the time, but I have noticed that he does it regularly. When he teaches a series, like we're we're going through the book of Luke, and it's an expositional series, when he teaches that series, he doesn't do what I do, which is to teach from Sunday morning to Sunday morning, and those are the different episodes of that series. No, he goes from Sunday morning to Sunday night. So if you don't come to church on Sunday night, you miss half the series. Actually, that's not a bad idea, you know, if you think about it. So we actually may may be doing something like that in the future. Um, But nonetheless, that's exactly what we're doing this evening. We started it this morning. We looked at the 10th and 11th verses. We put it into its context. I know some of you weren't here this morning. I'll try my best to sort of give you a quick review of what we have studied. If you would like to, I would encourage you to get on the Internet and to 
to watch the video of that. It's already actually up, um, so you can you can get the full history of, of 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 what we said this morning. But nonetheless, we are going to continue on in it. Now, there are three questions that I want to ask of us this evening, and I want us to I'm going to add, try to answer all three of them. But those questions are simply this: first of all, what does it mean to seek the face of God. What does that mean? And then secondly, how does one seek the face of God? And thirdly, are we here at New Hope Community Church seeking the face of God? I mean, are we really? And so those are three kind of probing questions that I'm going to try to both ask and answer this evening. Now, as I said before, there's a historical background to this that I went through in quite some detail this morning. I'm just going to sort of rush through it this evening. One of the things that I laid out, and it will be important because we really need to see this particular passage within this context, and that is the cycle that continues throughout history, from the very beginning of history all the way through, and the relationship between God and his people. There is a relationship first of blessing where God blesses his people. Then there is the rebellion when his people rebel against him. Then there is a spiral into evil and apostasy ending up in judgment. Harsh judgment as God judges his people for their apostasy. But he always restores a remnant. He always is merciful in restoring that remnant and then giving a blessing or at least a promise of future blessing. That's the, that is the cycle that we are in right now in this book of Jeremiah. Because going back to David and the time of David's kingdom and establishment by Solomon, God richly blessed the kingdom of Israel. But then towards the end of Solomon's reign and certainly after he died, there was a rebellion as people began to not seek the face of God, as we're going to define it tonight. And then there was a spiral into evil. And we start to see that the kings were actually um, not doing what was pleasing in the eyes of the Lord. And the people began to worship other gods and do all kinds of things of that nature. And then, of course, there was judgment. And we in this passage are right in the middle of that judgment. First of all, the northern kingdom, Assyria, attacked and destroyed it, depopulated it, and then repopulated it with pagans, and that's how the Samaritans came to be. And now the southern kingdom, Judah, is being destroyed by Babylon. By the time that Jeremiah writes this letter, already two deportations have occurred. The first one was rather slight. It was just the cream of the crop. That's when Daniel and his friends were taken off to Babylon. But then in 597 B.C., a serious deportation. Tens of thousands of people. The very backbone of Israelite society was taken off to Babylon, to the middle of nowhere. And then, of course, in 587, the ultimate destruction of Jerusalem, where he burned the temple and destroyed it and killed 
countless, I mean innumerable numbers of people after a horrifying um, uh, siege and the famine that occurred from that. So devastating. This is a cataclysmic event, one of the greatest events of judgment in all of Scripture when God ultimately judges his people. But now... Um, Jeremiah is writing a letter in between those two big ones, the 597 one and the 587 one. He's writing a letter to the exiles who are in Babylon already. Now, the problem that exists both in Jerusalem where Jeremiah is and in Babylon where the exiles are is the fact that there are false teachers, false prophets everywhere. And these false teachers and false prophets are telling them this is only a momentary thing. God doesn't do this kind of thing to his people. We are going to conquer in the end, so resist and rebel. Do not settle in here at all because you're going to be back in Israel very, very quickly because God takes care of his people. Well, Jeremiah writes this letter and he says, that's not true. Let me tell you what the Lord actually says. You are going to be here for 70 years, exactly 70 years, no more, no less. And I don't care how hard you pray or how fervent you are or how much you name it and claim it. It is not going to change the the providence of God. So therefore, settle in. Build houses and get married and have children and grow gardens and and prepare for the return, even though that's not going to happen for you. Basically, as we discussed this morning, this was a death warrant. I mean, these people are not going to return to Israel because even if you were 15 years old, you're going to be 85 when the actual restoration occurs. So this is for the remnant. This is for the next generation. This is for the children, really of the people who are reading that particular document. So that is the problem when Jeremiah writes these verses that we're reading tonight, starting in the 10th verse, because that is where he gives the somber news. 70 years, you're going to be there. But from that point on, he turns and it's all future blessing from there because he says that, okay, at the end of 70 years, okay, that's when all of this begins. He says, first of all, I'm going to come visit you. I'm going to begin to take this into hand and then I'm going to fulfill my promises. And we talked about that word fulfill. It's kind of like they went to sleep. It was dormant. I'm going to wake the promises up. I'm going to rouse them up. And then I'm going to do actually what I promised, which is to return you back to this place. This place, of course, being Jerusalem. There is going to be a return. There is going to be a blessing. And I am the one who is going to accomplish that, but not for 70 years. So again, great encouragement to the people who were there, but also a very somber situation. But here's the point that we made, or that I made, that, uh, that Jeremiah is, I believe, making in the way that he writes this, is that you have a hugely significant um, a task while you're there. You need to be preparing the remnant. You need to be preparing a group of people who are going to return to Israel and rebuild it. Because there is tremendous blessing on the, on the horizon. Your children are going to be the subjects of this kingdom. There's going to be the dominion 
back the, the land that God gave to Abraham, the king you're going to have to wait for for a while because I'm going to send my son as the king of kings and he is going to be the king of the kingdom of heaven when he brings it. So there's great promise that is going to occur. Now that, of course, is what he said in the 11th verse. I know the plans that I have planned for you. It's what he tells them. Now, basically, he's not saying that I know what I know. I know my own mind. He doesn't need to say that. God is omniscient. What he's telling in the context is these guys who are telling you that this is going to be a short-term deal, they don't know my mind. So don't put things in my mind. Don't put things in my mouth that I didn't say because my thoughts are not your thoughts. And so, therefore, I know the plans that I have planned for you. I have planned to bring you back to, to, to give you a, a, a welfare and not evil. Well, the welfare we talked about, that's a word for peace, actually. It's shalom, a form of shalom. And peace in the sense of a scriptural peace is a peace that is actually peace with God. It is not absence of conflict. It is a peace that occurs with God when he re- uh, restores people to his presence. That's what the return is going to be. It's going to be reconciliation. You're going to come back into the land that I promised Abraham and you're going to come back into relationship with me and ultimately I am going to bring my son because I promised Abraham that all the world would be blessed through your families and that's exactly what I'm going to do when I, br- I bring the Messiah. And he says I'm going to give you a future that has a hope. Now, that's what we discussed this morning, and I know I ran through that really quick. And if you weren't here, you probably said, whoa, you know, what, what on earth did you just say? But nonetheless, that is where we are when he goes into these verses. He has clearly stated that the, the, those of you who are in the, 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 the exile, you're not going to come back, but you need to prepare the remnant. So, brothers and sisters, what I'm going to read tonight and what we're going to study is a message to the remnant. Keep in mind, these blessings that he's talking about are going to occur at the end of the 70 years. So, these are the blessings that he is talking about will occur to the remnant. So, with that said, let's take a look at verse 12. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me. And I will hear you. What an interesting statement that is. Now, the then that starts that talks about the then after the 70 years. But that, that word is actually not in the Hebrew. It, it is just added because of the, of the kind of verb that the verb to call is. Now, when, when Jeremiah, speaking the words of God, says that you will call me, then in that day, after 70 years, you will call me. The word call means to, to cry out to God with a loud voice. It means to cry out to God, are you there? Are you listening to me? Can you hear me? Are you paying attention? How many of us have not cried out to the Lord that way? To cry out for him to hear you in a loud voice. Now, after that, of course, when you call out to the Lord that way, how are you doing it? You're doing it in prayer. You're praying to the Lord. So he says, call out in prayer. Then you will call out in prayer in a loud voice and you will Come to me. Now that's a very interesting word. Because that word actually means to walk my way. 
to walk towards me or to walk in a way that is pleasing to me. The operative word, even though it is not included here, is repentance, humility, contriteness, the exact opposite of the arrogance and self of focus of those who were sent in exile. After 70 years, those who return are going to return to me. God speaking. You are going to come to me walking in a way that is pleasing to me. And then you will Pray to me when you come back, when you come in the way that that I that I will listen to your prayers. You pray to me and then I will hear you. And brothers and sisters, we, we, we need to take a look at that because we know because we know from Scripture that um, that God hears us. By the way, the word that is used for here in Hebrew is the same word that is used in English, or the same. It has the same meaning as English. It doesn't mean the sound waves tickling the hairs in your inner ear that get translated into electrical impulses that go to your brain to be interpreted as sounds. Okay, that's not the the the, the meaning of hearing here. If it is used of humans, the hearing is an understanding and. And a comprehension. But when this is used of God, especially in the context of prayer, what it refers to is God accepting the prayers. God always hears our prayers. Well, let me put it this way. God always hears the prayers of his people. He always hears the prayers of believers. He's always listening to us. He never does not listen to us, even though sometimes it may seem that he doesn't. David wrote this, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Many places in scripture, we are re- assured that God listens and hears our prayers. He does not hear the prayers of unbelievers, even though many people say that he does. Well, he'll hear the prayer of repentance and acceptance of his son, the the request of salvation. But when an unbeliever who has no relationship with God, he doesn't hear those prayers, but every single prayer that a believer prays, God hears. But sometimes it seems like he doesn't. Sometimes we cry out to him and it seems like our words are kind of made out of lead and they just fall on the floor and they don't make it past the ceiling or outside of our own head. Once again, David had these kinds of experiences too. Psalm 22, he says, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer and by night, but I find no rest. So there are times that it appears like God does not hear us. But I want you to see something. Notice what he says here. Then, after 70 years, you will cry out to me with a loud voice. And you will come to me in the way that, walking in my way. And then you will pray to me and then I will hear you. Does that mean that for 70 years God didn't hear the prayers of the people who were in judgment? They were in in punishment, in exile. That's the reason they were exiled. But does that mean that he did not hear those prayers? Well, of course not. We know that he hears the prayers of his people. But what he is saying there is that I, I, I didn't accept them. I heard your prayers, but I did not accept them, and I didn't accept them because the time was not right yet. 
In other words, the name of claim it. People say that you can claim anything from a word in your head and God is going to answer it if you believe it enough. You could believe all day long that I'm going to come back after 35 years and you're not going to do it because it was not God's providential will. When God's providential will is complete after 70 years, then you will come back. Then I will hear your prayers. Now, there's, there, there's sort of a subtle reproof here in what Jeremiah says. In, 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 in essence, what he is saying, again, remember, he's writing this letter to people who are going to die in Babylon. They're never going to return to their homeland. It is their children and those who might have been very, very young at the time of the exile who are actually going to return. And so they, 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 he's, he's writing to them in sort of a reproof. Why 70 years? Why would it take 70 years before God brought them back? Well, Calvin puts it this way. After having, suffering the, after having suffered the exile, not one year, but of 70 years, then you will begin to be wise. In other words, it took 70 years for their hearts to change. It took 70 years for them to work through their own recalcitrance, their own arrogance, their own hard-heartedness, and in a sense... What Jeremiah is saying is that it's because of your hard-heartedness that it is going to take 70 years. You're not coming to me as those who will come to me with repentant and and contrite hearts. And sometimes, brothers and sisters, I, I fear that we haven't learned that lesson. And listen to me very carefully. Don't take what I'm about to say out of context. Don't misunderstand me. Sometimes I think... That when we go to God in prayer and we ask for things, we cry out to him because we are suffering. We're not answered because we do it with the wrong heart. And because whatever lesson the Lord is teaching us through that suffering. Quite often suffering is, we go through suffering for disciplinary reasons. We go through suffering for sanctifying reasons. Now, as I said, don't get me wrong. There are plenty of times in Scripture where people go through suffering and it has absolutely nothing to do with them, like Job. But I I have seen it in myself. I have noticed it in myself, and I certainly have seen it in quite a few people that I've counseled. They'll come to me with a horrible problem, a terrible upheaval in their life, and they'll ask me, well, what am I supposed to do? And I'll say, well, the first thing that you need to do is turn to the Lord in prayer. That is your first offense. Trust in him, believe in him, put your faith in him, accept his sovereignty, and, and, and ask him constantly and incessantly and fervently to fix the problem that's wrong with you. And they say, okay, I'll be glad to do that. And then they go out and I, I, I assume that they do exactly that. And they come back and they're furious. And they're furious because God didn't do what they asked him to do. And, and, and in essence, what they had done is say, God, I can't believe that you put me in this situation in the first place. How dare you do this to me? I'm supposed to be one of your people. This is not supposed to happen to God's people. But I'm going to give you one more chance to fix things. And if you don't fix things now, well, I'm not going to believe in you anymore. Or I'm going to be mad at you for, from now on. Well, guess what? You didn't learn the lesson that God was teaching you. If he's teaching you a lesson and you come back with that kind of heart, it is simply going to extend the suffering. And and, and that's kind of what Jeremiah is saying in this reproof is you guys are going to suffer for 70 years. Wouldn't it have been better if you just simply repented in the first place? 
Wouldn't it be better if it didn't take you 70 years to repent? As someone that it took 20 years to repent, I can tell you I would give my right arm if I could go back and repent after 20 minutes. I'd I'd have done it because I wasted 20 years of my life. And I know many of you have done exactly the same thing. So I think there's a very valuable lesson there um, that that sometimes there are what I'm going to call sanctifying delays. Sanctifying delays that God gives because quite often when he sends us through these things, he sends us through these things for our own good so that we will learn, so that we will strengthen. And brothers and sisters, if your heart's not right and you just simply are going to stay angry at God, you're not learning your lesson. And that's not going to bring, if that's exactly what he is teaching. If you only learn half a lesson, I think that you all know that a lesson that is partially learned is a lesson not learned. And so, therefore, it is the attitude with which we come back to God. And that's exactly what that verse talks about. Well, that leads us into the 13th verse, a very often repeated verse. And I don't mean often repeated outside of Scripture. I mean often repeated in Scripture. You will seek me. And find me when you seek me with your whole heart or with all your heart as it is put here. Um, At one time, I hunted down the number of times God says this in the Old Testament. It was some time ago, but I'm pretty sure it was 17 times that in the Old Testament that he in one way or another says, if you seek me with your whole heart, you will find me. Now, that's a promise, folks. It's an exhortation. But it is also a promise. And notice the you that he starts it out with. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with your whole heart. Well, the you there again is plural. So he is talking to the remnant as a whole. He is talking to the group. He is talking to his people. And that's the reason I want to approach this as a church tonight. Because if we are going to find application for this, it is going to be as a body. It is going to be as a plural. It is going to be as the people of God. So what God is telling us, what God is promising us is you will in that day that you come to me with repentance, with humility, when you come to me in that way, you will seek me and you will find me. Now, The word for seek that is used there, and this is kind of the operative word this evening. The word for seek means to, in this context, to seek the face of God. So that brings up our first question. What is the face of God and what does it mean to seek the face of God? Well, when you want to get to know a person and you're having a conversation with them, what do you do? Do you look down like this while you're talking to them over there? Do you avoid looking at them straight in their face? No, you study their face. You study their mannerisms. You study their body language because actually what you want to know is you want to know more about them. You want to know who they are and you want to know what they are actually saying to you. So to seek the face of God is to seek the real God. It is to seek the God as he is and not as our preconceptions of him or our watered down view of him or someone's opinion of him. It is to seek God as he actually is. So that's what it means to seek 
God or seek the face of God. And the question that we ask secondly is where are you going to find that? Well, if we were in this place and Jeremiah were sitting here with us, we would seek God and find him in the words of Jeremiah and in the prayers that surrounded those words. But since Jeremiah is not here, we have the written word, the infallible, inerrant word of God. And if we want to truly seek the face of God, we're not going to go ask the opinion of somebody who has their opinion of God. We are going to seek him where he can be found. And that is in the word that he has revealed himself to us to seek him in God's words. Now, the word find there means actually to come in possession of that which is sought. It doesn't necessarily mean to find something that was lost. It means that whatever you are seeking, you actually come into possession of that. You find that which is sought. So therefore, if it is the face of God, if it is the truth about God, if it is the real God that we are actually seeking, then the promise of this text is that you will find him if you seek for him in a certain way, which we'll get to in a moment. So he says, if you seek my face with, and, and, and you will find me, as long as you seek me with all your heart. Very interesting here. You don't pick this up in the English translation. But there are two completely different words for seek in the Hebrew. The first one that I said is to seek him, to seek his face, to seek the real God. The second one here is almost synonymous with intercessory prayer. It's supplication. It is to seek him in that way. And, and so in a sense, we have this unusual situation where one seek is when you're looking for him. And after you find him, it's the other kind of seek. If you're seeking the real God, then you will find him. And then you turn to him in prayer and you seek that which you were looking or crying out for him to show me. So you will seek me, you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. And no pun intended with this, but I just couldn't think of any better way to put it. This is the heart of the matter. This really is. This is very the very heart, the core of what we are studying here. Now, the word heart in Hebrew is like the word heart in English. It kind of could refer to the organ in our chest that beats and pumps blood around us, but it really doesn't. When in this context, the Hebrew talk about a heart, they are talking about the essence, the, the, the core, the fiber of who we are, our mind, our bodies, our soul, our hearts, our in, inclinations, our intentions, our imaginations, all of that wrapped up into one. When we read that, that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, well, all of those are wrapped up in what it means to have the heart that Jeremiah is talking about. And when he says all your heart, the word all means every last bit of your heart, nothing excluded. In its completeness, every aspect, every part, every bit of your heart is seeking the face of God completely. Anybody see a problem? 
Nobody's going to find him because we're fallen. And we can't possibly, we never have, nor will we ever seek God with our whole heart. Just like we will never love God with our whole heart. We will never. We haven't done it today. You will never do it. You sin egregiously against God every single day. We will not find him if that is all that kind of literal sense that Jeremiah is talking about. So we want to step back just a wee bit and recognize that basically what he is saying here is the idea of sincerity. Uh, All the heart or a whole heart as opposed to either half a heart or a double heart. You, 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 you know what James says about the double-minded man. The one who's tossed around like the waves of the sea that doubts and then believes and then doubts and then believes. He says that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Well, that's exactly what God is saying through Jeremiah. If you're seeking me with a divided heart, if you're doing what Jesus said we could not do, which is to serve two masters, this world and him, that doesn't work. There's no neutral ground in that because James makes it even clearer in his fourth chapter when he says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So therefore, to seek God with all your heart is to seek him with sincerity, with a a high level of fidelity to seek him, to look for the real God. Now, there are a lot of false prophets out there, a lot of false teachers in our day that are very loudly telling you they are seeking after God in that particular way, but they're really not because their hearts aren't right. They're not doing it for the right reasons. They're not doing it with a whole heart, with all their heart, either a divided heart or a double heart or half the heart but not what God is talking about here. So I know that's kind of a quick way of making it through that. I don't want this to drag out very long this evening, but, but let, let, let me go ahead and first apply it to where the exiles are, and then we'll kind of try to apply it to, to ourselves and answer that third question. When we look at what's happening with the exiles, we recognize something, that the reason they are exiles... We forget this, but the reason that they are exiled into Babylon is because they did not seek the face of God with all their heart. We go back into Jeremiah, you go back into Kings and Chronicles, you will see a terrible trail of apostasy, of idolatry, of burning their babies in the valley of Hinnom, worshiping the god Molech, worshiping the Baals on top of the mountains. They had become completely apostate by the time of this judgment. So exile, spiritual exile occurs because people stop seeking the face of God. And the worst thing we can do, brothers and sisters, is start making up a God that kind of resembles the real God and worshiping him rather than worshiping the real God. We ought ought to learn a lesson from the children of Israel just after they made it through the Red Sea and got to Mount Horeb. You remember what they did? They made a golden calf. They started to worship it. And what did they call him? The Lord. 
This is Yahweh. This is the Lord that brought you through the Red Sea. So they made a golden calf, but they called him Yahweh and thought that that was okay. No, we, we, we can't create our own gods. We can't do that because God has told us, I will not allow that. We just read the Ten Commandments, didn't we? And what did, this, what did the first two say? Especially that first one. You shall have no other gods before me. You know what that means? You shall have no other gods in my face. You'll have no other gods in my presence. You will have no other gods in the presence of my holiness. And so therefore, from the very beginning, God has said, no, you seek me and you seek my face. Don't put any other gods in front of me because that is simply not going to happen. And it took the Israelites or the people in exile 70 years before they actually had changed hearts, before a remnant returned. And, and I wish that I had time this evening, I don't, to take you into the books of Ezra and the books of Nehemiah, and we could see the result of those who had that remnant that had been prepared. We could see the way they came back. Ezra, for instance, in returning to the law of Moses, and the people sat and listened, or actually stood, and listened to the word of God being read virtually all day long. Or those that came back with Nehemiah, and even though the enemy stood at the four uh, points of the compass, they rebuilt that wall in record time with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. All right, fighting every step of the way. These are the kinds of people that the, 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 the preparation of the remnant sent back. People with the right hearts. People that walk to God with the right kind of a repentant and humble heart. Well, let me slow down just a wee bit as we prepare now to take communion. And let me try to... Apply this to ourselves. Hopefully, I've answered the first two questions for you. The first question what, what is, what does it mean to seek the face of God? What it means is to seek the true God. God as he actually is. Not as God as we want him to be. Or God as somebody else tells us he is. But God that is revealed to us. How do we seek the face of God? We seek it through his infallible, inerrant word. God is incomprehensible, folks. We can't know anything about him. He can own, we, all we know about God is what he reveals to us. And the way he has revealed himself to us is through the mouth of his prophets written down in the pages of this book. This is where we seek the face of God. This is where we will have an encounter with the real God and not some God that we have made up. Which brings me to the third question. The one that is more personal. And that is... Are we here at New Hope Community Church? Are we seeking the face of God? Really? Are we? Well, sometimes we are and sometimes we aren't, right? And some of us are and some of us aren't. But I want to look at this from a corporate position because even though the church is a group of individuals... And the real church, the actual invisible church, the church that God sees, no matter who's sitting in the pews, he knows who his own are. When he looks down upon us, he knows those who are truly his. We are bound together. We are brought together in what we call particular churches. And this is a particular church, a particular body of Christ. We are bound together with each other in a very special way. 
when I teach marriage. I talk about an identity that is created when a man and a woman are married. There was a he and there was a she, and now they become a we. And that we actually has an identity. God has a relationship with the couple, not just with each individual. That's why marriage is so precious to him, and that's why he hates divorce. Well, it's like that with the church. We're, we're a group of individuals. We each have a relationship with God, but we also have a very tight bond that God has pulled us together. And it's almost that we have an identity. I mean, when Jesus talked about the churches in, 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 in Revelations, each one had an identity. He knew each one. He knows us. He knows this place. He knows how we are gathered together in his name. And the question that I want to ask is, are we seeking the face of God? And just a couple of things that we need to um, understand. First of all, that this is an exhortation. This is a promise, brothers and sisters, that if we are actually seeking the face of God... We'll find him. All right? That is a tremendous blessing. As a church, we will find him. He will reveal himself to us. He will bless us with a deeper illumination and understanding if we are seeking the one true God with all of our hearts. The second thing that I want to see or I want to ask is, okay, so with that said, why... Why do people get exiled spiritually? Now, you've heard me say this many times. You see the lampstand that's sitting right there? You may not see it, but there it is. There is a lampstand that burns bright with the Holy Spirit. And we are told in the book of Revelation that each church, each church, and those seven had a lampstand. And Jesus promised that if they stopped seeking the face of God, he would do what? He would remove the lampstand. Told that to the church of Ephesus. What would cause him to remove our lampstand? I believe, brothers and sisters, that we have a lampstand. I believe Jesus is here right now in his spirit, especially for the time of communion. I believe we have a lampstand burning right. How is it going to remain? Seventy years from now, will that lampstand be here in this place? How will we know? What are we doing And this is what this message was this this morning. What are we doing to ensure that this lampstand will be here 70 years from now when we are long gone, most of us, not all of us, but most of us. When we're not here anymore, who's going to pick up the torch? Who's going to keep the light lit? Who is going to shine the light in the darkness? Who is going to teach those others? Do you realize how important it is that we are preparing the remnant then? How important it is that we are passing things on To those behind us. And so therefore there's just one thing. I could go on and on. But I'm not going to do it. But let me just tell you. One of the reasons that God removed the lampstand. From churches. Is because churches get lazy. They get indolent. They get too comfortable. They start going through the motions. And the fire. Of their own salvation. And the fire of the kingdom. Starts to grow cold. I read a sermon from Spurgeon on this passage, and he made this point, and it's a good one. As goes the pulpit, so goes the pew. So if there's going to be laziness in this church, if there's going to be indolence, if there's going to be a falling away from the pursuit of the kingdom of God with zeal and excitement, it's going to start right here in this pulpit. 
when the pastor, the one who is preaching, starts to get tired or starts to lose his passion for the Word of God and starts simply going through the motion or starts talking off the top of his head or stops going into an in-depth study to try to find out what the Word says so he can bring it to you and share it with you, then that is when the church is like a cancer that passes through the rest of the church. So let me ask you on this New Year's Eve, looking forward to a new year and the years that go beyond, let me ask you to promise me something. That if you ever see me lose my passion, if you ever see me stop to study deeply in the Word, if you ever see me straying from the Word of God, If you ever see me starting to get lazy or indolent or focused on something else than bringing you the word of God every time I step in this pulpit, then on that day that you notice that in me, give me a a day of break. Give Give me a little bit of grace. But on the day that you see that, start looking for another pastor. Promise me that. Promise me that you would never let someone stand in this pulpit for any length of time who would not be teaching and preaching with a passion and a zeal and an excitement and an awe in the Word of God. Because if that starts, then it's going to spread to the rest of the congregation and that lampstand is going. won't be here in 70 years. But the flip of that is also true. If your pastor... And I do it as best as I can. I'm, I'm, I'm not overestimating my abilities as a pastor, but I, I do spend time. According to Steve Lawson, I spend way too much time. Uh, he, he can teach me how to spend less time. Of course, he's got a photographic memory, and I don't. But I spend too much time in the preparations of the messages. But I try. Every Sunday, uh, I, I work on this message. If there's a Sunday night, I'll work on that message. And on Wednesday night, I'll, I'll, I'll work long hours trying to make that a meaningful Bible study. Even when we gather together with the school parents, I never just simply talk off the top of my head unless I have to. I've prepared. And if your pastor is preparing, and yet you sit out there and you dream of something else, and you're not paying any attention to what he has said, he has worked all week to try to give you a good sermon, and you are completely uninterested. When Sunday night comes, you're too busy watching football. You don't care to go to church. You don't show up on Wednesday nights. You don't study your scripture. You don't go to the different small groups or Bible studies that they have. Then do not be surprised if that lampstand disappears. Do not be surprised if God takes your pastor and takes him someplace else. Because he's not going to put up with the indolence, the laziness. That is what led to the problem. It's a downward spiral. Brothers and sisters, we need to seek the face of God in all that we do and in everything that we do. Let us not, in the years ahead, let us not become lethargic. Let us not lose the excitement. Let us not realize that when we gather together at this table of communion, that Christ is here. Is that not the most extraordinary thing? That the Spirit of God is in our midst, and He is binding us together? So therefore, dear brothers and sisters, we need to recognize, and I'm talking to you as a church As a body of Christ, we are in a very special situation because we have a lampstand that burns brightly. And we need to be very careful in the way that we plot our course, both this year and in the years to come, that we actively, proactively seek the face of God 
with all of our hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I know that those words are terribly inadequate. But this is such a core issue because so many churches lose their, their, their love. And that's what you said to the church at Ephesus, that they had lost their first love. We, we fall from that first love and we get comfortable and then we get lazy. And we don't recognize that you have called us into an active service, a service that, that, that really focuses on each other. And dear Lord, I just pray that that will be uh, that servanthood that we have seen in so many different ways. That will be something that will just be manifest in this church. And we will give you the glory as we now go to a time of communion. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we do on New Year's Eve, what a treat it is to have a time of communion. Um, Most of you know that the communion table is a table that the Lord established for us on the night before he was taken into custody and killed the next day on the cross. It was a very special time that he spent with his disciples. This is not a sacrament that brings with it any effectiveness. It's not going to forgive your sins just by taking the sacrament. And it is not designed for people who do not know and love the Lord. So if you don't know the Lord or if you're too young, you have not made the profession of faith. Parents, let the plate pass your children until they have accepted and been uh, accepted as members of the church. But if you're here and you love Jesus Christ and you count him as your savior then you're welcome because you know this is his table. It's not ours. It's, it's a, a table where he communes with us in a way, a very special way. Of course, by the Spirit. There's nothing in the bread that makes it the body of Christ. There's nothing in the, in the fruit of the vine that makes it the blood of Christ. It is commemorative in that sense. But it is more than just some memory. It is of greatest importance. It is a time of spiritual grace. It is one of the means of grace whereby we actually grow in Christ as we come together as a body. So we're going to call the elders up. My brothers, if you'd come on up now, and I'll come down and we'll serve all the elements um, and then we'll take them all at the same time.
from the book of Luke now, when Jesus instituted this time of communion with his disciples, that we read, and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. We do this also in remembrance of our Lord. Paul goes on to tell us that when we eat this this bread and we drink this fruit of the vine, we proclaim our profession of faith in Jesus is professing that we believe not only who he was, what he did, where he came from, but that he will come again. And so we look forward to that and we say, as always, Maranatha, the Lord, come soon. Let's pray. Our dear Lord, we are so grateful for this sacrament. What a nice way to grow closer to you. We think about all of the images that you give us in the book of Acts of the early church gathering around, taking this communion together, having meals together, knowing that you were there in your spirit in their midst. And we think about all of our brothers and sisters throughout the 2,000 years of this church, many of them uh, being persecuted throughout their time, dying early deaths, martyrs' deaths, others living ripe, full lives seeing the glory of your revival move around the people in their midst. Lord, we uh, pray that that will continue with us, that we will see revival, that we will see your hand. But even if you don't, Lord, we relish your sovereignty because we know that this life is just a blink and we will be with you for an all of eternity. And in the process between now and then, I pray that you would use this church, that you would bless this church, that you would bless us as individuals so that we are stronger, and that you would bless us as the body of Christ so that we might do your work more effectively and that you would send more of it our way so that we can have an impact on the world around us. We give you the glory. We pray your blessing upon the new year, blessing on those who are headed home. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.